uh, in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 15, the Lord talks to Moses. And here's what the Lord says to Moses. Why are you crying to me? Tell the people of Israel, go forward. Go forward. And I thought, you know, that's such a uh, helpful word straight from the Lord. Go forward. When we're up against something that is really difficult and something that maybe creates fear for us and so on, uh, the Lord's advice would be, you know what, take a step forward. And uh, as, as we go forward, God comes through and is faithful, but it's that step of faith. Take a step forward, that step of faith that often uh, God is looking for. And so when we're up against those difficult uh, situations in life, we might remember that God said, Moses, you go tell the people, go forward, go forward, take a step forward. And so the Israelites, you know, crossed on dry land and Pharaoh's army is eliminated. Uh, Probably the largest corporate miracle to ever take place, right? I mean, the estimates are up over 2 million people uh, going through the Red Sea. Think about that, right? And, And as a result of that, in chapter 15 of Exodus, as we saw, Uh, The people just break out in spontaneous worship. I mean, this is really a a great miracle. And they're like, wow, we went from fear to worship. And uh, in chapter 15, uh, this great song the people sing, and and, uh, Miriam's got her tambourine, and everybody's learning the music and so forth. The very last uh, phrase of this song, uh, most people see as prophetic for the future, And uh, verse 18, it says, the Lord will reign forever and ever. There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe, right? That day is coming. And when we look at this story of Exodus and how God parted the Red Sea and so forth, we can see, you know, Jesus has what it takes to pull this off that someday he's coming back and someday he's going to rule over the whole universe and uh, what a great day that's going to be. The Lord will reign forever and ever. In the New Testament, that's called our blessed hope. I think the best way to translate the word blessed because it's kind of a church word, um, unless you sneeze, but um, the word blessed simply means happy or joy-filled, right? Uh, That's our happy hope. That's our joy-filled hope. There is coming a day uh, when the Lord will return. And uh, in the meantime, God's advice to us would be go forward, whatever that means in whatever situation we're in. Okay, so the people are three days out after having the sea part, after having all their enemies wiped out. The people are three days out, and the grumbling begins, okay? Okay. Uh, Let me just read a couple of verses here from uh, Exodus 15. Uh, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness, found no water, and when they came to a place called Marah, they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. Marah means bitterness, and therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, and they said, what are we going to drink? And uh, Moses cried out to the Lord. It's a pattern, right? Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord shows him a log, and he threw the log in the water, and the water became sweet, and the people had all they could drink. And so um, this becomes sort of a pattern, sort of a grumbling. Uh, Moses does what he's told to do. He prays, and then he does whatever God says to do. 
And uh, God gives the people water uh, as soon as Moses does what God says to do. And so uh, one of God's names, remember we talked about how important God was revealing himself to Moses through his names, and one of God's names, uh, which you're very familiar with, is Jehovah Rohi, which simply means the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, the Lord knows we need, if, I mean, he created us. He knows we need water. He knows we need food, right? And uh, he, he's got a plan for it and so forth. And uh, so the Lord is my shepherd, and the Lord's got a plan, and the Lord provides for them. Next, uh, verse 27, Exodus chapter 15, verse 27 says, Then they came to a place called Elam, E-L-I-M. Uh, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. <laughs> this is like an oasis in the desert, right? Uh, all these uh, springs of water and palm trees. It's like this oasis in the midst of the wilderness. And I have to just uh, take a minute here uh, just to talk about a place uh, actually called Elam Park. It's a place believe it or not, that you guys own. If you're a member of this church, our group of churches here in New England has a retirement home called Elam Park. It's in Cheshire, Connecticut. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. I don't know that you even know that you own it, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it's like a first-class resort. I mean, it's got an indoor pool. It's got computerized uh, exercise equipment. You go there, somebody figures out what you need to do. They put it on a card, you put the card in the computer and the exercise machine tells you how many reps you have to do and what the resistance is going to be and the whole thing is all pre-programmed and set up. There are restaurants, beauty salon, uh, the, the place is really uh, something to brag about. And I just tell you this because if you have parents who are getting older and you're looking for a place, this is a God-first ministry. Uh, they give Guys like me, retired pastors and missionaries, a break if you live there in exchange for leading Bible studies with the residents and visiting people. There are uh, all different levels of care. There's independent living uh, if you just want to go there. Uh, there's a rehab facility. There's a full-skilled nursing facility. There's uh, assisted living. So there's this a full care uh, place, and uh, it's really great, and you own it. And so you owe it to yourself to just check it out sometime uh, so you know about it. All right, Elam. And the name comes from here. People say, Elam Park. What, what is that? Elam. Well, it's an oasis in the desert, right? It's a place where there's 70 uh, palm trees and a bunch of springs and plenty to eat and drink and so forth. However, chapter 16 in Exodus, as we move away from Elam and uh, they go out into the wilderness and so forth, uh, next thing we know, in chapter 16, um, the grumbling starts again. I'm um, in verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, they're complaining because there's no, f no food, right? Said all the people of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt, uh, in the morning you're going to see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, who are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. 
And as soon as uh, Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard your grumbling. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you'll eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread, and then you shall know, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord your God. And so, uh, I, I don't know if you were counting, but there's seven grumbles in six verses. The word grumbling comes up more than once in a verse, right? Uh, and so, it's kind of interesting here. Um, God is patient with these people, right? God is patient with grumbling people. And uh, he, uh, interestingly, it seems to me, uh, he connects um, he connects this reality of food to something spiritual. Now, we're talking about a fast. And uh, here out, he's got a plan. He knows the people need to eat and so forth. But he's withheld the food in order to teach the people that, hey, the food comes from me. The food comes from me. I am the Lord, your God. So uh, I think I got ahead of myself a little bit. But in um, uh, verse 4 of uh, 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people, and you'll go out and gather a day's portion each day. Just one day's portion. Now, these people are hungry. They're grumbling, right? Maybe you're like that at supper time once in a while. And, um, you know, and the Lord dumps this uh, quail and bread, uh, manna on the wilderness and so forth. But notice what it says here in, in the fourth verse. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my laws or not. I'm going to use food to test to see whether or not the people will listen to what I'm telling them. I'm telling them just gather one day's worth at a time. Don't try to get more than that because it's not going to last. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our what? Daily bread. Like, trust me on a daily basis. And it seemed to me like when we're talking about fasting, this is kind of an idea where God is like using physical bread to teach us a spiritual lesson and to bring us closer to him spiritually. And uh, you see that it it says there in the fourth verse that the, the Lord's doing this so that I may test them whether they're going to listen to me or not. Now, I don't know about you, but all through growing up, I always thought testing was for the benefit of the teacher. I thought the teacher needed to know how I was doing. So, you know, I would do the test, and and she would put the grade on it or whatever. And then I found out uh, I married a teacher. So I found out way later in life, right, that uh, the teacher already knows how bad I was. The test was for me. It was for my benefit to see that this is where I'm at in relationship to where I should be. And so God, he already knows what's in the people's hearts. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. So he gives a test, right, for our benefit so that these people could understand how bad they are, how faithless they are when it comes to listening and taking God at his word and how bad they were at trusting God. 
even after all these miraculous signs that God did. You know? And I think to myself, wow, um, I wonder if we could think of a fast as a test. Not for God's sake, but for our sake. Like, ah, you know, a fast. Well, that means, you know, sacrificing something and praying more. And so I'm thinking, you know, if I do that for 21 days, I'm getting an A. If I do that for half the time, I'm taking a C. If I say, I'm having nothing to do with this, I've never fasted in my life and I'm not going to start now, you flunk. Right? I mean, and God is saying, I'm going to withhold this food in order to create a test so that the people can know where they're at. And uh, it's really for our benefit that we need that. And so these people, you know, are hungry and they're grumbling. And, uh, you know, uh, in spite of the fact that the people crossed the Red Sea and they crossed, you know, they uh, saw all their enemies wiped out and uh, they saw the... uh, miracles that God worked against the Egyptian gods and saw how powerful he was and so forth. And uh, I, I think these people crossed the line here because the Bible says, and it's kind of subtle, but if you look for it, you can find it. It says that uh, the, the people went from crying out to the Lord to crying out against the Lord. When they were in Egypt, they were crying out to the Lord, please help us. When they were up against the Red Sea and when they got, uh, had no food and water and so they start crying out against the Lord, right? And uh, here's what they said. The people, and I'm in verse 3 here of uh, chapter 16, the people of Israel said, you know, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate all the bread that we could eat and... Uh, You, Moses and Aaron, you brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. You know, and they begin to cry out against, they they forget maybe, or they realize, but they don't want to deal with it. It's God who brought them out of Egypt, right? It's not Moses. Moses is God's instrument and God's leader and so forth. And uh, I think, uh, you know, we're trying to learn from Moses. So Moses says something very interesting, I think, in this um, Eighth verse of chapter 16, he says, your grumbling is not against us, it's against the Lord. When people grumble and it's against you, what we can recognize, right, is that people grumble because something's missing in their relationship with the Lord. When people grumble against us, you can bet it's because something is missing in their own relationship with the Lord. And when you look at that that way, you begin to look at people through God's eyes and see their needs and recognize that what they really need, you know, is a word from God and understanding that man doesn't live by bread alone, right, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so something's missing. When people grumble, something's actually missing uh, from their relationship with the Lord. And... Uh, In the middle of all of this, however, God just keeps giving. He's full of grace, and uh, he loves these people. Uh, I think up to this point in time, God's been like a power broker. Everything that God has displayed about himself screams power. There's no limit to God's power. That's why we can read in the Bible that at the end of time, uh, he's going to come, and he's going to rule forever and ever. Uh, He has the power to do it, and uh, certainly he's put it on display to these people and so forth. 
But at this point in time, God goes from being sort of a power broker to a provider for the people. Because why? God wants to win the hearts of people. It's not about power. God loves these people, and he's put on a display of power so that the people could learn to trust him. But I often think that um, love and power are opposite ideas. Have you ever thought about this? In any relationship, in your marriage relationship or with your kids or in any relationship, friendships, whoever has the most love has the least amount of power. If you love somebody, right, you're going to serve them. So love and power, you know, kind of work against each other. Another word for power is control. That's kind of a popular word today. A lot of people feel like, you know, my husband's a control freak, you know, kind of thing. And love and control are kind of opposite ideas. And if you think about it, love works like this. Love accepts somebody first. I accept you. You know, I embrace you. I love you. I choose to love you. Okay? Even though there's lots of things wrong with you and so forth, I love you. And once I accept you, I begin to affirm you. I begin to look for things that I can affirm and that I can, you know, uh, just affirm and, and acknowledge and relate to. Then as the relationship progresses, after I accept and affirm, I begin to hold accountable. But you said you were going to X, Y, Z and so forth. I'm going to begin to hold you accountable. And ultimately, I want you to understand my authority. So God comes and he says, I love you. I accept you. I've chosen you. I've created you, Israel. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've fed you. I've watered you. You're my people. I've chosen you. You know, I love you. So I accept you. And then I begin to affirm you. And now I'm starting to hold you accountable. And ultimately, I want you to understand who I am. I want you to know who I am and I uh, authority. Power or control goes the opposite direction, exact opposite. Power shows up and says, I'm an authority. I'm an authority. I'm an expert. I'm, you know, and so you will listen to me. Boom. And then I begin to hold you accountable. Did you understand? Do you know? Do you, you know, and I begin to hold you accountable to whatever. And if you come through, I just might affirm a couple things about you. And if I can affirm enough about you, I might get to the point where I actually accept you as my spouse or as my child or as my teacher or as my friend or however. And so the question then becomes, is God a God of love or a God of power? The God you've come here to worship today, is he a God of love or power? Well, he's both. But here's the deal. He uses his power to love us. Right? Romans 5.8 says that, you know, in this is love, that God sacrificed his son while we were yet sinners. God loves first. God loves first and uses his power to bless us and raises Jesus from the dead and, and so forth to bless us. And so I just think it's important to kind of understand that. In Deuteronomy, now the book of Deuteronomy, um, you know, this is like, a repeat of Exodus. If you've read Exodus and Deuteronomy, put them side by side, there's a lot that's parallel. However, Deuteronomy is um, addressing the second generation of Israel. Remember, all the people who came out of Egypt died out in the wilderness, but a whole new generation was born out in the wilderness, 
And Deuteronomy is Moses talking to that second generation. So he's reiterating a lot of stuff that, you know, is also in Exodus that he shared with their parents. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, um, verse 2, uh, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So the whole 40-year, this new generation, right? And the key word is remember. (coughs) Moses is saying to this next generation, hey, don't forget the lessons that your parents learned, you know, in the wilderness. And um, this is the part that's talking about the grumbling. And so when we go here, uh, we see that it all had a purpose. And uh, for he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, and did not your fathers know, and uh, that he might make known uh, that man does not live by bread alone, okay? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The manna this didn't show up there. The manna came as a result of God speaking. And God is that powerful that he speaks, Moses does what he says, And uh, God performs these miracles for these people. So there's 40 years of testing so that they could know, you know, what was in their own hearts, your attitude toward God. And it was humbling because God was the source of their life. I mean, food equals life, right? And so food and water uh, was coming from God because of God's commands. And by the way, this is the first uh, uh, quote that Jesus makes of Moses' words. Remember, Jesus was hungry. He was led out into the wilderness by the devil, and he was being uh, tested as well. And um, you remember the devil says, you're so hungry here, you haven't eaten for a while, why don't you tell these rocks, why don't you just speak to these rocks, tell them to turn to bread, you know, if you're really the son of God. And uh, Jesus quotes Moses here, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And that's the lesson that, you know, people had to learn and had to remember uh, the food was decreed by the word of God. Uh, Jesus quotes this. And so uh, God makes the connection again between our bodily uh, needs and uh, f- physical food and our spiritual lives. God held back on the food so that people could learn that uh, their life comes from him. Their physical life, their spiritual life, their social life, their mental life, their uh, emotional life, uh, everything, our material life, everything comes from God uh, through his word. Uh, Somebody said, God wants to change our minds way more than he wants to change our circumstances. And I find that so true in my own prayer life that often I'm praying for circumstances to change or for situations to work out, and basically what happens is I end up changing. You ever do that? You ever kind of have an enemy and you're mad and, and... you know, you know, God tells you you're supposed to pray for your enemy, so you do it. And uh, next thing you know, you have a whole changed attitude toward that enemy. You realize that that person maybe is grumbling because something's missing between their relationship with the Lord and themselves. And uh, so we here at uh, RBC need a new pastor. Uh, we need God to find him, uh, but we probably, you know, don't remember that all through the week as much as we perhaps could and should. We probably are more concerned about what we're going to have for dinner tonight than we are about, you know, who's our new pastor going to be on a regular basis in terms of uh, prayer. 
And so that's why this fast enables us to kind of use food. Let's go without food for a little while uh, in order that we might, uh, you know, force ourselves like God forced these people uh, back in uh, the wilderness uh, to pray and to just be mindful. Because the key word in this passage is remember, remember. And we forget, right? We leak. Our memory leaks and we forget and we get busy with all kinds of other things. It's kind of like giving ourselves uh, a test. Um, So we notice that, you know, every time the people grumble, Moses takes it to God in prayer. Uh, A biblical fast is simply an intentional, concentrated time of prayer. It's uh, part of living a God-first life, and it's between us and God. All right, so back to the uh, people in uh, uh, the wilderness in Exodus in chapter 17 as we keep moving forward. Uh, The people move again. They come to a place called Rephidim, uh, but there's no water. And so in uh, this chapter in 17, uh, the congregation of Israel moves from the wilderness, uh, uh, moves to a place called Rephidim. And therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Uh, Why do you test the Lord? Now, all of a sudden, the people are going to test God, right? Hey, God, you know, and, and if we just look forward a little bit, uh, it says that uh, in verse 7, uh, is the Lord among us or not? That's what the people were saying. Is God really with us? Is God really leading us out here? Has God really got a promised land for us? Is there really a heaven? Should I really make adjustments in my life today for something that God's promised in the future? Should I really sacrifice today in order that I might be rich in heaven? You know, is it true is God really doing this, or is this Moses and Aaron, and is this just kind of a human thing, and, and so forth? And so uh, this is also an interesting passage. Um, Moses cries out to God, and God tells him in verses 6 and 7, uh, Behold, I'm going to stand before you on a rock there at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called, on the, name, he called the name of the place Massa because it was... That means testing, and Meribeth, which means quarreling, uh, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord here. You don't test the Lord and uh, question, you know, what he's doing and so forth. And we don't have time, but um, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you'll find out that this rock that followed the people through the desert was Christ. And um, this is a big deal, that Moses was to strike the Lord. It's kind of the illustration that God had prepared about Good Friday when uh, God was going to strike the rock, strike Christ, and allow him to uh, die in our place for our sins and so on. And so they're three months out of Egypt now, and the first three months, you know, haven't really been easy. The people are still grumbling. Uh, They dumped their grumbling on Moses and Aaron, and uh, it sort of seems to me like these people, like many of us, it's like, um, you know, what are you going to do for me today? I can't remember what you did for me three months ago when you got us out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea, got rid of our enemies, and, and I can't remember all of that, you know. Uh, I, wanna, I just care about what are you going to do for me today? And uh, I heard somebody explain one time, and I think this is absolutely right, that uh, wisdom, okay, we all want wisdom. We all want to be wise. We all want to make choices. Wisdom is the ability to connect the dots between your past your present, and your future. 
Wisdom is being able to connect the dots, who I am today in the present, to who I was and how I grew up, what my experiences were, who my parents were, all of you know my past, and connect the dots. That's why I'm, to some degree, who I am today and what God did for me over the past, and that's why I am who I am. And then to connect the present also to the future. God's made some wonderful promises about the future to his children, right? And I love the study of prophecy because God says, listen, you want to know who I'm the only God there is, and one of the ways I prove it to you is I tell you what's going to happen before it happens. If you just think of Christmas, I can show you in the Bible 50 different promises that God made about the first coming of Christ and how they were fulfilled literally. And so when it comes to the second coming of Christ and we take all these other passages uh, we can have confidence that this is in our future. But if, you, if you're not wise, if you're foolish, the opposite of wisdom in the Bible is foolishness. So if you're foolish, you just live in the present. What are you going to do for me today? Right? And we don't think about, you know, why am I in the mess I am? Well, because this happened in the past and in the future. I shouldn't do this. I made bad choices here. I shouldn't do it here because God's got a better future for me and so on. Unwise is just living in the present, in the moment, Right? Uh, it, it's just a, a difference between uh, wisdom. And so, you know, the key verse here, it says, well, the people just didn't remember all three months out. And they're forgetting about these miracles that happened in Egypt and the Red Sea and getting rid of their enemies and all the rest of it. And uh, two things happen, and I'm just going to tell you about them real quick. First of all, they get in their first fight. Uh, this guy named Amalek, and if you trace him back, um, well, we don't have time to do that, but... He's related to Esau. Uh, you remember Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau came out first, so Esau was the older, and with that came certain rights. And uh, Jacob, you know, uh, however, before all this happens, God says the older is going to serve the younger, and that's the opposite of the culture. And so Jacob, you remember, uh, cooks a meal, and his brother Esau comes in and says, oh, give me some of that, you know, and and Jacob, who's a schemer a little bit, he says, you know, well, first you sell me your birthright. I want all the privileges. You know, he was a twin, but he older. And, anyway, this guy was a, a descendant or a relative of Esau, who probably felt ripped off uh, by Jacob. And so they fight. They come, they come against Israel. They're going to fight. And uh, this is Israel's first fight out in the desert. And uh, you can read it in uh, chapter 17. And then the second uh, issue that happens, uh, just before the people arrive at Mount Sinai, which is where they're going, uh, which Lord willing we'll talk about next week, is where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. It comes down from the mountain. That's really cool. But uh, before that, a guy named Jethro, you remember, who is Moses' father-in-law, shows up in the desert, just like a true in-law. He just sends a note, and he says, I'm here, and I've got your wife and your kids. Okay, now you can read into that whatever you want, but he's been raising his grandkids while Moses is leading these people around the desert, and uh, finally Jethro just shows up, right, and he's just there. Now Jethro, uh, I can't explain it, but he, he comes from uh, um, Ishmael's line. Now there's a whole, you know, the whole Muslim world today traces their roots back to Ishmael and claims Abraham as their father through the son that Abraham had through his handmaid, not the son of promise, Isaac. And so anyway, uh, he gets converted. It's kind of cool. You, read, you can read this in uh, Exodus 18. And um, the very next day, he's looking at Moses, and he's saying, you know, Moses, what you're doing here is not right. 
And he's only been a believer on God's side, right? One day. And so um, he looks at it and he says, you know, you're, you're working too hard. You need to reorganize. You need a reorg here. And he gives them the ideas how he should reorg. And so uh, it sounds great. I've actually been to seminars where we were taught, you know, this is how you run a church, reorg kind of thing, and do it according to Jethro and blah, blah, blah. The only problem is it never says in the scripture that it worked. It just never worked, okay? And so when you get to numbers uh, and you're kind of talking about this, God steps in and says, listen, it wasn't a reorg problem. It was a spiritual problem. And I'm going to take the spirit that I put in you, and I'm going to put it on these. You get these people together, and I'm going to put that spirit on you, and we're going to solve this thing spiritually kind of thing. Anyway, all of that happens. And, uh, but the important thing, I think, for us this morning to take away is when grumbling happens against you or you're the grumbler yourself, just assume something's missing in your relationship with God. It's not a bad thing to grumble. It's just go to the right place to solve it, right? And one of those places is the past. Remember what God has done for you. And that's exactly what we're going to do right now. We're going to uh, share the Lord's Supper together. The Lord said, I'm going to uh, you know, give you this uh, meal, if you will, to uh, remember, just never forget that uh, I went to the cross and I died for you. I rose again on Easter Sunday And uh, this is given to you so that you don't become a grumbler, but you remember that God loves you so much that he died for you and uh, gave his life for you. And uh, that changes things when we begin to remember that.